Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 32. The Great Detective. Charlie went ahead and took over as Jimmy the Fearless after a week of haunting our performances like Banquo at the feast. He made a good fist of it too, I had to admit, even though the way he had shoved Stan aside still rankled with me. With me more than with Stan, actually, I think. One night, well into the run, Stan, now just one of the cowboy gang, stood at my shoulder watching Charlie as Jimmy cutting the bread into a concertina, listening to the audience lapping it up, standing there with a big silly grin on his face. I don't know how you can be enjoying this, I whispered. What do you mean? Stan hissed back. It's still my gag. That's my laugh, that is. That was Stan all over. He didn't care who got the laugh, so long as there was one. I, however, was more inclined to give credit where it was due, and so Charlie's guilty backside, when presented invitingly to me for a fake lashing at the end of the piece, regularly got given what for with the dando belt. Christ, he complained one night, rubbing his buttocks. Did you really whack Stan that hard? Absolutely, I swore. It's what makes the ending. It is interesting now to wonder what was really going on over Jimmy the Fearless. Charlie was such a hit in it that it was difficult for any of us to see what he had not liked about the idea in the first instance. He was good, too. I still have a cutting in my scrapbook, yellowed and curling, from the stage, which declares, The best work is done by Chaz Chaplin in the name part, and Arthur Dando as Jimmy's father. You can see why I kept that one. Ever since Charlie had joined Carno, all he'd been asked to do was mimic and improve upon other comics' creations. His brother Sid showed him the way in mumming birds and skating, and Harry Weldon broke the ground in the football match. With Jimmy the Fearless, he was asked for the first time to create a new character from scratch, and his confidence deserted him. Strange to think that, considering what he went on to do and to be, but still. Stan always said that poor, brave, dreamy Jimmy grew up to be Charlie the Tramp so maybe Chaplin actually never did have to create another character for himself. One balmy Saturday evening, I clambered to the top deck of our omnibus to come face to face with Tilly and Amy Minister, shrieking excitedly and laughing their heads off. "'Whatever's the matter?' I asked. "'It seems I am to have my honeymoon after all,' Amy babbled all of a flutter. "'Alf is to take a brand new company to America.' America. It struck me like a thunderbolt. The land of the free, the land of the fresh start, the setting for so many of the adventure stories I'd lapped up since I was a boy. Surely Alf could get me on that trip. After all, was I not the hero of the great standing up to Fred Carnot over the tormenting of his wife incident? Did he not say he'd do anything for me? And the best news of all is that Tilly is to come too. Their happy giggling began afresh, and I staggered to the back of the bus in a daze. I had to get on that trip. That night I sought out Alf at the Enterprise, grabbed him urgently by the sleeve. Alf! Listen to me, you're going to America again! That's right, he shouted over the hubbub at the bar, and Amy is coming too, it will be a grand adventure! When? Next month! Take me, I said, please! Alf's face fell. Take me, I urged. I've had a bellyful of this country, and I really want to go to America. I don't think I can, he said. What? I yelled. I don't think I can, he said again. 
What do you mean you don't think you can? I cried. Surely you could pull a string or two. For me? Alf frowned. The truth is, I've just about used up my credit where you were concerned, young man, he said. And anyway, listen, this one isn't up to me. It's up to the number one. He can say who he wants, and he can say who he doesn't want. And if he doesn't want you, that's it. He doesn't want me, you say? No, lad, he doesn't. Well, who is the number one, I asked, although deep in my central nervous system I already knew what the answer was going to be. Why, Charlie Chaplin, of course. I pushed my way through the crowd out into the street and set off walking furiously to nowhere in particular. Thinking frankly murderous thoughts, I ran my finger along the handle of the knife I'd taken from that ginger heckler before I shoved him into the canal, which was still in my pocket like a little trophy. I suddenly noticed for the first time that one of the sides was not as smooth as the other and pulled it out to take a closer look. Sure enough, there was a pattern of indentations, symbols, letters carved in the grime, which spelled out... What? I turned the knife around, trying to catch the light from one of the street burners, and found a stub of pencil to poke away the muck that was caught in the grooves. And after a little amateur archaeology, I had it. SS Dover Castle. So, our heckler was a seaman, was he? And what was his game, anyway? There'd been something so deliberate about what he did, the way he'd seemed to know exactly the point to interject to cause the most disruption. And someone had paid the man, evidently. So who stood to gain? Perhaps Wall Pink was behind it. Perhaps this was the beginning of his great move against the Fun Factory. Perhaps I could find out a little more. And perhaps if I did, that would go some way towards repairing my relationship with Carno. Perhaps I would be the hero of the hour. Perhaps, I reasoned feverishly, I would even be able to parlay that into a place on the boat to America. So the following morning, having no rehearsals, I left Fenchurch Street Station on the London, Tilbury and South End Railway Service as I had on my previous Sherlock Holmes-style adventure, this time heading for Tilbury Dock. My plan, if you can dignify what I intended with the name, was to stroll nonchalantly around the docks until I came across the SS Dover Castle, and then to find a vantage point from which to watch the ship until I caught sight of the man with the ginger halo and the distinctive nasal features that I'd so enjoyed rearranging a few nights earlier. After that... Well, Watson, I was planning to play it pretty much by ear. Once I strolled up to the docks themselves, however, it became apparent that this plan did not have a great deal going for it. For one thing, access to the wharves was blocked off by enormous gates that were guarded by a pair of pretty rough-looking individuals who each looked nearer than I liked to the end of their respective tethers. For another, there were literally thousands of men there, milling about outside, eyeing the gates hungrily, hoping against hope that someone was going to come out and start recruiting casual labour, at which point they would tear each other to pieces so that the coveted jobs would go to the last left standing. And we thought the corner was brutal. Comparing that to this would be like comparing a cricket match to the Coliseum. At least if you got into a scramble for work with some of the types down at the corner, you could take the wind out of their sails with a sarcastic remark about what they were wearing. I elbowed my way through a crowd of surly-looking coves with dirty neckerchiefs. These seemed to be a badge of honour, or at least a credential, a bit like wearing a sign around the neck, reading, "'Will work until filthy for cash,' and crossed the no-man's land to the gates themselves. One of the guards regarded me coolly through the ironwork, slapping a large truncheon into the palm of his hand. He had a gun as well, I could hardly help noticing, strapped to his belt. "'Excuse me,' I said, extra politely. The fellow didn't speak. He conveyed to me that I should continue speaking by blinking in a menacing fashion. Not easy to do. "'I am trying to locate a ship,' I said. "'We have ships,' the fellow said dryly. "'Yes, ha <laughs> very good. Um, a particular ship, I mean, name of the Dover Castle.' 
What business do you have? What business? Cargo, passage or crew? Passage. Yes, that's it. I busked off the top of my head. I'm a passenger, of course. The man brightened. Ah, well, in which case I'll just need to see your documents then, please, sir. Documents? Ah, well, you see, uh, hmm, the thing is, I haven't yet arranged my passage. I, I just wanted to take a quick look at the ship and make sure, do you see, that she looks nice and seaworthy before I, uh, um, I see, sir. And once you've had a quick look at the ship, I presume you'll be returning with my gift. Your, yes, my birthday gift. I was born yesterday, apparently, so it's a day overdue. I do hope you've brought me something nice. Ah, he leaned towards me and lowered his voice. See those blokes behind you? There's hardly a one of them hasn't tried at one time or another to slip through these here gates. They're meeting an auntie from overseas. They're collecting an important package. The idea being, as I'm sure a man such as you can fathom for himself, that once inside, they will be able to badger, plead, or otherwise grovel their way into a day's paid work. Now it's my job to see that that don't happen, for that way chaos lies. Which is why no one gets through these gates without his documentation, or at the very least, a union card from the Dock, Wharf, Riverside and General Labourers Union. I nodded. Righto. Now you seems like a nice gentleman, so I'm going to help you out. Firstly, you are more than a touch overdressed for wharf work. And secondly, there is no Dover Castle here, and as far as I know never has been. So whoever sent you down on a promise that he could get you a position was having a laugh. Got me? I retreated and strolled away, under the suspicious gaze of a vast throng of surly and unemployed dock workers. Clearly I need to rethink my approach before I tried this again at another yard. I felt their eyes on my back, all the way to the end of the road, where I turned a corner and found myself in a large open space. This was similarly packed with men, but these ones had their backs to me. All were watching a speaker, who was addressing them from a dais, backed by an embroidered banner proclaiming the very same Dock, Wharf, Riverside and General Labourers Union just mentioned. He was certainly a passionate orator, this chap, and he had this huge crowd in the palm of his hands. I paused to watch for a while, admiring his presence and technique. He had the power, all right. "'For we are at war!' the chap cried, pushing his flat cap to the back of his head. "'Don't think that we are not! The owners would crush you if they could, and replace you with unthinking mules!' "'Aye, Ben, you tell them!' went the murmuring mob round about me. "'Lord Devonport, there is a man who will stop at nothing!' This Ben went on, and a grumbling rose up. Lord Devonport, I gathered, was not a popular figure in these parts. "'He would know what our plans are, and what our strengths and weaknesses, and so he sends spies to move amongst us, listening, watching!' This brought a wave of angry grumbling and spitting on the floor from the assembled. "'So let us all be vigilant, and seek out the interlopers!' "'Aye!' roared the mob furiously, except one voice behind me which said, "'Here's one!' All about me, heads turned to seek out the speaker. I myself looked round with a sort of detached interest, like a curious observer of the show. The damned fool was pointing straight at me. Well, things quickly began to get ugly. A tight ring of muscle-bound wharfhands hemmed me in, and I began to get barged from side to side. One flicked my hat off, but I was too closely packed in to bend and retrieve it, and wouldn't have really wanted to bend in any case. Questions jabbed in from all sides, like hostile punches, and there were hostile punches as well, which jabbed in, like... Well, like questions. Who sent you? What you up to? Who's your master, you lackey of the ruling class? Had all the jargon, that one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not whatever you think, I protested, but my cries were lost in the rising angry hubbub. What I was thinking was, for heaven's sake, I'm a socialist. Wait a minute, lads, a deep voice cut in, and there was a pause in hostilities for a moment. This un's no spy. 
I recognises him. I do. Oh, yes. My heart missed a beat at that, I can tell you. The only person I could possibly imagine recognising me in this hellhole was none other than Testicle Nose himself. I'd walked, like a fool, like a dumb fool, into his very lair, where he was backed up by hundreds of like-minded friends and colleagues, and I was surely done for. A beating and broken bones at the very least. I'd probably end up with a nose like his. I closed my eyes a moment, took as deep a breath as I was able, and turned to face... Someone else. Thank the Lord. It was a vast chap, wading towards me through a sea of flesh, a head taller than those around him. He could easily have torn me limb from limb, should he have so wished, but a benign smile was spreading across his stubbly features. Yes, yes, I recognises him, all right. He's one of Fred Carno's boys, ain't you, son? I could have kissed him, except that would almost certainly have made things worse. Yes, yes, I am. That's what I am. Not a spy. I'm a comedian. A comedian! My saviour pointed a vast finger not unlike an uncooked Cumberland sausage into my face. Football match! You was the centre-forward, the one with all the tricks! Tilbury Empire! Yes, Ratty, that was me! Well, well, well! I cried. So what you doing down here? mused the giant. Picking up some tips from our Ben, is it? I glanced up at the dais where the spittling orator was still in full flow, but casting angry looks over towards the distraction we were causing. No, 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 nothing like that. Uh, we... we... <sighs> "'We're preparing a new show. Yes, that's it.' I clapped my hands as inspiration struck. "'A new show set right here in the docks, and we wanted to make sure we get everything just so. "'Wharf! Birds! That's what we're calling it! Wharf Birds!' An excited hum of chatter swirled around me now from my erstwhile attackers, thrilled at the prospect of being immortalised on stage. I reached into my coat pocket and pulled out a fistful of free passes that I'd lifted from Alf's office with the thought that they might grease a wheel or two along the way. I thrust them at the giant, who grasped them with childlike glee, and then obligingly carved me away out of the mob. "'Just one thing,' I added, once we'd made it to a little bit of open space at the edge of the rally. "'Do you know a ship called the Dover Castle?' The giant's brow creased in a mighty frown. "'I don't know it, no.' "'Right. I see. Oh, well, I'd best be off.' "'But,' he went on, "'if it's a castle, it'll be one of the Union Castle line. "'They're all the something castle. "'Pembroke Castle, Kinforn's Castle, York Castle, Donotar Castle, "'all sort of names like that. "'You should ask at their office. "'Now, where is that?' "'After a moment, he snapped his fingers. "'Of course, I knows it. "'Finchurch Street.' "'I sighed. "'I'd risked life and limb, "'and the answer was right back where I'd started that morning. "'Nice one, Sherlock.' I thanked him and scuttled back to the railway station as fast as I could. Once back at Fenchurch Street, I located the offices of the Union Castle Mail Steamship Company soon enough and ventured up the steps. A doorman in a natty lavender and black livery held the door open. A hey, very good afternoon, sir. Cargo, passage, accounts or stuff? I'd had some time on my return journey to consider my plan of action a little more carefully, so I replied, Stuff. The liveried greeter jerked a thumb towards a dark corridor and returned to his post. I followed this corridor to a staircase which led down into a basement. There I found a veritable warren of corridors, with small offices leading off to either side, and some light provided by high-frosted windows at street level. Dust hung and swirled in the sunbeams, which blinked at the passage of feet on the pavement above. Everywhere there were packets of papers bound together with string, just stacked on top of each other in piles, which made the corridor so narrow that I had to edge along sideways to make progress. I reached the end of the corridor and an office that was larger than the ones I had passed. A man sat behind a desk there, also lost in filling in some form or other, and he muttered without looking up, "'Be with you. 
be with you in a moment. I tucked my hands behind my back. This, by the way, is pantomime language for a man of substance, which is why the royals do it, and inspected my surroundings. On the wall was a large map of the world, with coloured pins variously scattered about its surface. The largest concentration by far seemed to be in the vicinity of the Cape of Good Hope. Next to this were two framed portraits of military gentlemen, which I inspected while I waited. "'Lord Roberts, Commander-in-Chief, South Africa, and General Kitchener,' said a voice behind me. The clerk had finished his paperwork and had come out from behind his desk to greet me. It was our very great honour to transport these fine gentlemen, both to and from the conflict, along with many of our brave lads. Really, I said, my brother fought the Boer with the Essex. Perhaps you transported him as well. Very possibly, very possibly. I must say that, even though I myself never set foot ashore, I still saw things I never hoped to have to see again. Some of the injured we brought back home. Here he stopped and clapped his hand to his mouth, realising that I had not said how Lance had fared out there. "'My brother doesn't like to talk about it,' I said. "'He was at the relief of Kimberley, I believe, "'and fortunately returned from the adventure whole. "'Good, good,' the fellow gasped, "'pulling out a handkerchief and mopping his brow. "'Well, my name is Turnbull. "'Dando,' I said. "'Arthur Dando. "'Welcome to Bleak House, Mr Dando, "'and how may I be of service to you?' "'I have a message for one of your crew members,' I said. "'This was the story I'd concocted. "'I wonder if you could tell me where he might be found.' "'I see.' Turnbull said, returning to his desk and reaching for a ledger. "'What ship?' "'The Dover Castle,' I said. "'Dover Castle? Dover Castle?' he murmured, licking his fingertip and flicking through the pages. "'Here. And the name?' "'I'm afraid I don't know,' I said. "'You don't know the name of the person for whom the message is intended?' "'I don't, but perhaps if you could tell me where the Dover Castle is, I could—' Mr. Turnbull was having trouble digesting the information. You have a message for someone, but don't know who. No, but as I say, all I really need to know is... Turnbull stepped out from behind his desk and strode to his door. Uh, Mr. Handley, uh, Mr. Bunn, uh, step in here a moment, if you would. In short order, we were joined by a couple of junior clerks, eager to please. This gentleman has a message for a member of the crew of the Dover Castle, but he does not know the name of the recipient. Doesn't know his name, Mr. Turnbull? "'What does he look like?' one of the junior clerks ventured. "'Yes, do we have a description?' "'Look,' I said, "'all I really want to know is where the Dover Castle actually is, "'and I'll pursue the matter myself. "'But if you can describe the man you seek, "'we may be able to identify him for you.' "'Actually, I thought, if they could tell me the heckler's name, "'that might be very useful, and they were so very keen to help. "'So I said, "'Well, he has a bald head with a crown or halo of gingery hair, "'and but one other distinguishing feature that I can think of. "'His nose, it is... "'grotesquely huge, and divided into two globes, not at all unlike—' "'Turnbull held up a hand. "'Say no more, sir.' "'Mr. Handy and Mr. Bunn were smiling knowingly at each other, "'and Turnbull was now running his finger down a column of the ledger before him. "'Here we have him. Yes, indeed, the very fellow. "'Molden, his name is. "'He is a second mate on board, as you yourself said, sir, the SS Dover Castle.' "'He was in this very office not three days ago,' Handley said, "'and his nose was even more of a spectacle than usual. "'He was swearing all kinds of bloody revenge on whoever it was who'd made it so as well, "'and, yes, thank you, Mr Handley, that will do,' Turnbull said, "'as he wheeled his chair around to consult a chart on the wall behind him. "'I'm afraid your message will have to wait, Mr Dando. "'The Dover Castle is one of six steamers we have carrying the mail to the Cape, "'and on to Natal. "'It's a five-week run there and back, leaving every Thursday afternoon, "'and so Mr Molden will have departed yesterday from Southampton.' "'I see. Gentlemen, I thank you,' I said. "'Good day to you. Is your message perhaps one that could be wired ahead?' 
Turnbull inquired. Could I ask, are you a family member or a potential employer? Or, he winced apprehensively, a police officer, perchance? No, indeed, I replied. You would not be the first, Turnbull said. Or perhaps a detective? No, no, no. In point of fact, I said, not really knowing why I said it, I am a comedian with the Fred Carno Company. This news went down big, as I had a feeling it would. Oh, well, in that case, Turnbull said, beaming, I suspect then that we know who your message is from. Eh, Mr. Handley? Mr. Bunn? Handley and Bunn nodded vigorously. I beg your pardon, I said, surprised, since, of course, there was no actual message. Oh, yes, one of Molden's former shipmates on the Dover Castle is now in the music halls, and a colleague of yours. We remember him well, do we not? Indeed we do, Mr. Turnbull, said Bunn. Quite a character, said Handley. I frowned. Suddenly I had the urge to shake the information out of them, but managed to hold myself in check. I have his picture right here. He signed his name upon it. Now where did I... Ah, here we are. See? Turnbull handed over a postcard-sized publicity photograph of a kind that music hall stars would have to give out to admirers. I looked at the picture. The face was unmistakable, and even if it had not been, the signature was legible enough. Suddenly I had a vivid flash of an image that I recalled from the night at the Oxford. I'd been feeling the effects of the ether, and it all felt like a dream swimming in and out of focus. But yes, it was this same face and the creature Molden together, wasn't it, outside the stage door there. Molden tucking some cash into his pocket, smirking, and this fellow glancing anxiously over to see if I'd seen him. It was Sid Chaplin. <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Chapter 33 Tied Up in Knots Charlie Chaplin was in Nottingham, and he was furious. What a waste of a day! He'd just travelled by train the twenty or so miles over from Leicester, where he was starring as Jimmy the Fearless at the Palace, and now he was striding angrily across the western edge of the old market square. Last time he'd been in the town, the previous autumn, the Goose Fair had been on, and the big helter-skelter had been standing over there, opposite H. Samuels the Jewellers. 
Now the square was just a big open space, people scurrying hither and thither about their business, with the shops on one side and the exchange on the other. Robin Hood won an archery contest here, they kept telling him last time, he remembered. It was a warm day and he stopped to cool off and calm down. He was early, with a few minutes to spare before the meeting to which he had been summoned, and so he took a seat on a bench, lit a cigarette, and wafted his face with his hat. The nerve of that Billy Rag! Chaplin reached into his pocket for the letter with its Nottingham postmark and scanned it one more time. He'd looked it over on the train as well and probably knew it off by heart. Dear Charlie, it read, Things have gone hardly for me since the football match got cancelled and I got sacked off Mr Carno. I have tried to find some work, but nothing doing. I'm on me uppers. I know you are at Leicester this week. I seen a bill. Come over to Nottingham on Tuesday to the white statue in front of the Theatre Royal. Come at midday. If you do not come and pay me five pounds, I will write to that same Mr Carno and tell him all what I done for you, and that is a promise. Your faithful friend, William Rag, Esquire. Blackmail. That's all it was. The letter had been waiting for him at the palace when the Jimmy the Fearless Troop arrived for the band call on Monday morning, and he had nearly had a seizure. He'd wired Sid at once, and the reply came back, two words only. Pay him. Chaplin looked around at the busy square as he finished his cigarette. This was Rag's hometown, of course, he remembered. He played for Nottingham Forest, didn't he? In the cup final, no less. He watched people crisscrossing the square in front of him with disdain. These humdrum little provincials with their scrubbed faces and their limited little lives. How he despised them, and feared them too. Despised their low sense of humour, their inability to appreciate the nuances in his work, in his art. Feared that if he was to fail in the music hall, then he might end up amongst them, like them, one of them. How tired he was of touring to towns like these. He felt like he'd been doing it all his life. He had, almost. What with the eight Lancashire lads starting in 1899, then with Mr Gillette's Sherlock Holmes, and then that pompous ass Wal Pink's company, Casey's Circus, and now with Carnos these last three years, there could hardly be a dismal, boxy-housed, grey-stone, cobbled-street, corner-shopped conurbation in the country he hadn't spent a week in at one time or another, in rain and shine, boredom and joy. America. That was what he was looking forward to. A fresh start. New horizons. Different towns. Different people. A sense of adventure. Of scope. Of freedom. It was trite and obvious. He knew that. But in the vast open spaces of America, he felt he'd be able to breathe. Not like here. Tilly would be there too, he found himself thinking. She hadn't been as excited as he'd hoped when she'd heard the news, though. He'd made sure that she knew that he had requested her. But that seemed to be the very thing that was sticking in her craw. She was attractive, no doubt. But independent, too. And did he really want her, or did he just want her because Dando wanted her? At least Dando would not be making the trip, which would simplify things, not only with Tilly, but also with the company. Too funny by half, that was the trouble with Dando. He'd taken a bit of fixing, but it had been worth it. There was only room for one, number one. Young Stan Jefferson was funny too. He tried to have that young man drop from the America company as well, but Alfred said he was the perfect understudy, which he was. Too damn perfect. Just as long as he knew his place. Chaplin checked his watch and saw that it was five minutes to the hour. Let's get this over with, he thought to himself, and set off briskly up Market Street. Once he reached the Theatre Royal, he saw the white statue quickly enough. It was an immodest marble tribute to a local hosier set on a plinth maybe eight feet high. He'd seen it before, but not particularly remarked it. There was no sign of Billy Rag, Chaplin noted impatiently. There was only an old gypsy woman wearing a threadbare shawl and a tattered bonnet and holding a basket of lucky heather on her lap as she sat at the base of the plinth. 
He strolled over to look at the front of the royal, which was presenting a piece by Mr. Shaw, it seemed, while the Empire was just up the street there where the town's musical entertainments were to be found. He strolled back towards the statue, glancing up the streets to the right and left to see if he could catch sight of Rag's lanky frame, but there was no one even remotely like the big brute in the vicinity. "'Lucky ever, dearie,' said a voice at his feet. Chaplin glanced down at the old gypsy woman. Like all theatricals, he would admit to being somewhat superstitious, and he found himself fumbling in his trouser pocket for a sixpence, which he handed over. The crone struggled inelegantly to her feet, and pinned some heather to the lapel of Chaplin's jacket, drawing him in closer as she did so. "'There you go, me ducks,' the gypsy said. "'Thank you, mother,' said Chaplin. "'I'll tell you fortune if you likes,' the crone offered. "'No, thank you, I don't have the time right now,' Chaplin said, turning away. She tugged at his sleeve. "'Come on now, Charlie, don't be like that!' Chaplin turned back, startled and frowned. "'You know my name?' "'I knows a good deal more than that,' said the woman, a teasing smirk on her walnut-brown face. "'I suppose you saw me at the Empire?' "'No, I never did, me ducks. I'm sure you were a sight to see!' "'So?' Chaplin ventured, intrigued now. "'What else do you know, exactly?' "'Ooh, let me see. I knows you are here to meet a fellow, a tall fellow.' I knows you are here to give him an amount of money. I knows your name is Charlie, and his name is William. Chaplin peered suspiciously at the witch's face under the battered bonnet. What is this? How do you know me, and how do you know his name? Did I not give him the name my own self? said the gypsy. What do you mean? Chaplin said, perplexed. Why, it was my father's name, Billy's grandfather. You mean you are Billy Rag's mother? That I am. "'His mother? You're his mother? Well, where is Billy?' "'He's not come. He sent me instead.' "'Why?' said Chaplin. "'He's frit. He wasn't sure you'd come along. "'He says you might send chaps to thrash him for his impertinence.' "'Chaps? What chaps? Whatever is he talking about?' "'Sailors,' he says. "'One of them with a great big red nose like two great tomatoes. "'Nasty piece of work, by all accounts.' "'Oh, him. Don't worry about him.' "'Listen, I assure you, I mean Billy no harm. "'He asked me to come, and here I am.' "'And do you mean to pay him what he asks for?' "'Well, I, I wanted to talk to him about that,' Chaplin said. "'He had the money, but he had no intention of handing it over "'without some assurance that there would be no repeat of the footballer's demand. "'Did he not do what you asked?' "'Yes, yes, he did. "'But did he not break some other chap's leg, just as you wanted?' "'Well, I didn't exactly specify, but I suppose it worked out all right,' Chaplin said, glancing around to see that no passers-by were close enough to eavesdrop. "'And would it not be most embarrassing for your good self if others were to learn of what you asked my bill to do?' "'It would, it would,' Chaplin conceded hurriedly. Suddenly he felt very uncomfortable having this conversation out in the open air, and he was anxious to be away. "'So I give the five pounds to you. Is that the arrangement?' he said, fumbling in his jacket for a pocket-book. "'That would be acceptable,' the old gypsy woman said." Chaplin withdrew the notes from their hiding place and held them out for her to take. When she reached for the payment, however, he suddenly twitched his hand back. "'Tell Billy,' he said firmly, "'no more after this. This is an end to the matter.' "'Oh, no, Charlie. No, no, no. This is not the end. This is just the beginning.' Chaplin started. He looked around in bewilderment. The old crone had not spoken. She was just grinning up at him. It was someone else. A man's voice. A voice he knew. Out from behind the plinth, where he had cleverly managed to conceal himself when his accomplice had pulled Chaplin close to affix the lucky heather, strolled the very last person on earth Chaplin wanted to see at that precise moment. 
Arthur Sebastopol Dando. Me. Chaplin recovered himself after a moment. What is your intention? He said sourly. You go to Carno and it's your word against mine. You're forgetting my witness, I said, indicating the ancient gypsy crone with her basket of lucky heather. Billy Rag's mother, Charlie said with a sneer. Who will believe her? Oh, come on, catch up, I laughed, as if Billy Rag would send his mother to meet you. Do you not recall my friend, Mr Rafe Luscombe? He has stood you supper many a time. The gypsy removed her bonnet and a tangled grey wig to reveal a slicked-back gentleman's barnet and a stark line across the forehead where the edge of the wig had been. Pale white male forehead to the north and weather-beaten walnut makeup and fake warts to the south. "'What ho, Charlie!' Luscombe cried. Then to me he said, "'I thought that went rather well, didn't you?' "'I liked Frit,' I said. "'That was most convincing. "'And me ducks. "'That was excellent.' "'Yes, I was pleased with those suggestions. "'From our local friend the stage doorman, no less.' "'I wondered about chaps, though. "'You said chaps rather often, and it didn't quite strike right.' "'Do you know, I wondered about that too,' Charlie said bitterly. "'I never dreamed for a moment that it was you, though. "'It made me wonder if the woman had perhaps fallen on hard times from something higher, you know.' "'Congratulations, my friend. You are quite wasted in the import-export business. Johnny Doyle should look to his laurels.' Luscombe glowed. "'Thank you. Coming from you, that's... Well, I'm overwhelmed.' They shook hands, the two of them. Quite sporting of Charlie, actually. I clapped him on the back. "'Well, you look like you could do with a drink. Shall we adjourn?' I led Chaplin off to the pub on the corner, which we'd frequented during our week in Nottingham the previous autumn, while Luscombe trotted round to the stage door of the theatre. We'd bribed the stage doorman to let us use a dressing room, some make-up, and the street crone get-up from the shore play, whichever one it was. Cost us a couple of pints, that's all. In the pub, we settled into a booth, where I got on the outside of a pint of Marston's, and Charlie sipped a large port, as per. "'Ah!' I said, a large sigh of satisfaction. "'So,' Charlie asked, "'are you going to tell me the purpose of that little charade?' "'I needed to know, that's all,' I said. "'To know,' he said, wary. "'I already knew that you shopped me and Tilly to Sid in Warrington,' I said. "'I knew you did it to put me off when the governor came to inspect us. "'I knew that you took up with Tilly in secret. "'Well, we already had that one out in Paris, didn't we?' "'I'll drop her,' he said quickly. "'You can have her. I'll give her back.' "'I laughed. I could hardly wait to tell her that he said that.' "'I don't think she'd take very kindly to being passed around like a piece of luggage,' I said. "'But anyway, I knew that orangutan Molden was a friend of Sid's, "'and I knew that he'd been sent to heckle me and stand to help you, "'so I was interested to hear just now that you know him too. Very interested.' "'Charlie sipped his port and wouldn't meet my eye. "'Of course, who better to tell him the precise moments to cut in "'so as to do the most damage?' There was something else about that night at the Oxford that was niggling away at me, though. When my knee was broken by that oaf rag, and I was carried from the stage, you suddenly sprang from the wings to continue the performance in my place, did you not? You would have done the same for me, I'm sure. But that was only a matter of moments later, and yet I saw you between the shows, in the bar, in your own clothes, not in Stiffy's costume. How could you have had time to run around backstage, find your costume, get changed, and leap out to save the day, all in the time it took to shovel my sorry carcass out of the way? How could it be done? Charlie said nothing. You knew. That's how. You knew it was going to happen. So you were ready. Now I wanted to know if you'd paid Billy Rag to break my knee. Actually, your turning up at all in response to that letter was proof enough for me, but it was nice to hear it from your own lips. You wrote the letter, of course. I did and Rafe posted it. He's been here for a couple of days. His family's firm has an office here, so it all worked out rather well. I didn't mean... I mean... I was horrified by what happened. I... Save it, I said. Not interested. 
Chaplin took a sip of port, his eyes calculating. "'What are you going to do?' he asked flatly. "'Well now,' I said. "'Alf Reeves is taking you to America, right?' Charlie nodded carefully. "'And Tilly is going too?' Charlie nodded again. "'And Mike Asher, and Stan Jefferson, and Albert Austin?' "'Yes, but not me. "'Now why would that be, I wonder? "'I'm one of the gang, aren't I?' Charlie looked at me coldly. "'But why? Why do you even want to go?' "'I've always wanted to go to America,' I said. "'It's the land of the free, isn't it?' "'Yes, but I'm sorry, what I meant was... "'After what we were just talking about, "'I can't believe you'd want to go with me.' "'I don't,' I said. "'You aren't going.' "'That stopped him dead in his tracks. "'He gave a little gasp. "'I'm not going,' he said eventually. "'You're not going. "'And how am I to explain that, pray? "'You don't have to explain it. "'Just miss the boat.' "'Just miss the boat?' Oh, you mean rehearse the show, behave for all the world as if I'm looking forward to going, and then just miss the boat? Exactly. Madness. Nonetheless. And if I don't go along with your lunatic scheme? I leaned in towards him and fixed him with a beady glare. I'll finish you, I said. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 